our modern era has a problem, only we often don't realise it. You see, in the past, it's been more or less given, if you don't please God, you're in serious trouble. If you don't approach him with respect he deserves, if you treat him lightly, or worse, if you just ignore him entirely, well, then the only outcome you can expect in life is serious trouble. But the problem is, for our modern era, pleasing God has become a bit of a non-issue. Relatively few people are concerned to please God. I mean, just look at the effort that people used to put in to pleasing God. People would pour fortunes into building big church buildings, not just any buildings, you know, magnificent stonework, tall steeples, buildings that declared how great the God that was worshipped there was. Walk into those places and, and you knew the God who worshipped, was worshipped there was someone who needed to be pleased. But obviously, you know, God isn't impressed by the size of our buildings. Uh, he owns the cattle on a thousand hills. So, you know, later on, people built simple buildings, much like this one. But there still was this assumption that God's place, the place where God's people met, should be honoured. And so God would be pleased if we showed respect to this house. What it looked like looks different in different places. I know a church um, and that I was in at one stage and children would be told off for coming up the front of the church because, you know, that was showing reverence for the place where God was. Other places, they felt you couldn't just have a plain building and you needed stained glass windows or a pipe organ or a cross in the centre of the church in order to please God. That was the reason you put it there. You wanted to show that this is the, the place for meeting God. Show disrespect to the place, and you're really showing disrespect for God. But for some other people, well, how you please God is, is how, you tr- um, how you behave, your practices, what you do. Going back a few centuries, you had vast sections of the community set aside just to please God. It's what we, you know, convents and monks were all about. These monks had various practices, uh, fasting, beating yourself, getting up for mass night after night. And the purpose of those practices was to please God. And in fact, the whole community would, would provide food for these monks so that they could devote themselves to pleasing God for the community. Now, more recently, people don't do that. But we might eat fish on Fridays or observe Christmas and Easter or not work on Sundays or say grace before meals. And there are practices that people will do in order to please God. You could tell people wanted to please God because of those practices. But in our modern era, people don't worry about those practices. Not most of the time. If you point it out to them, they might say, well, you know, God isn't impressed by buildings or by practices. But at root, for many people, they just don't care about pleasing God. They don't even worry whether they please God. And that's a problem. Because God does care about our attitude towards him. We need to please God. He created this world and he loves it, so he deserves to be respected. But... What do we do? How do we please God if honouring places and, and observing practices doesn't cut it? And that's the question we need to ask ourselves as we read about Stephen's trial today in Acts. What should we do to please God? So let's start in chapter 6 when we're introduced to Stephen. 
Now, verses 1 to 7, they're worth a sermon in themselves, so we just won't be able to do that. Uh, They say how important preaching and prayer was in the early church. But our purpose is is just to meet Stephen. We're going to look at these verses in detail. We're just going to note that they introduced this guy, Stephen. The situation is there's money trouble threatening the early church. Some people aren't getting their fair share. Rather than chew up the apostles' time, they appoint seven men. And these seven men are to take care of those in need. And that's where we meet Stephen. Let's just read verse 5. So the apostles have suggested appointing seven men. This proposal pleased the whole group. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit, and also a bunch of other people. So Stephen's given responsibility for the needs of the church. He's on the committee of management. But that's not what he becomes known for. God quickly singles him out for a more important purpose. It turns out that Stephen is a spirit-driven preacher. He's outspoken in the temple. He's stirring up arguments. In a way, he's speaking about Jesus. Stephen seems to be doing the apostles' job. And he's being opposed. Not by the Jerusalem Jews, but by Jews from northern cities, right up to what we call Turkey. And notice that it's the Spirit who's working in him. This is God once more at work. He's the one stirring up trouble. Have a read with me, starting at verse 8. Now Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, did great wonders and miraculous signs among the people. Opposition arose, however, from members of the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, Jews of Cyrene and Alexandria, as well as the provinces of Cilicia and Asia. These men began to argue with Stephen, but they could not stand up against his wisdom or the spirit by whom he spoke. The job of speaking about Jesus is moving beyond the apostles. But what exactly has Stephen done? Thankfully, it doesn't take long for us to find out. It turns out that his opponent's accusations are pretty serious. Their concern Stephen is displeasing God. They accuse him of speaking against Moses and against God. You just don't get more serious than that. It's enough to get Stephen hauled before the Sanhedrin. Have a read of verse 11. Then they secretly persuaded some men to say, We have heard Stephen speak words of blasphemy against Moses and against God. So they stirred up the people and the elders and the teachers of the law. They seized Stephen and brought him before the Sanhedrin. But when the trial starts in earnest, they nuance things a little. Well, first off, they need to find people willing to lie about what Stephen's been saying. But once they do, they clarify the charges. Actually, when they said Moses, they meant the law. And when they said God, well, they meant the temple. Have a read in verse 13. They produced false witnesses who testified, this fellow never stopped speaking against this holy place and against the law. In fact, they narrow things down even further. Not surprisingly, it all comes down to Jesus. Speaking against Moses turns out to be claiming that Jesus will change their customs. And speaking against God is actually saying, Jesus will destroy the temple. Have a look in verse 14. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs Moses handed down to us. Now these are pretty serious charges. And from the priest's perspective, there's good reason to be worried. I mean, we heard all about how important the temple was in Ezra and Nehemiah, didn't we? It was God's place. God cared about the temple. And likewise, 
Moses gave Israel practices. They're, they're not just any practices. These are God's practices. Remember, part of Ezra's big concern was to get the people to observe the law, the practices God had given. Nehemiah wept before God because the people didn't observe the, God's practices. And just how important these are becomes obvious when you remember Israel's history. You see, what happened when they didn't please God? Well, they were sent into exile, weren't they? The nation of Israel was destroyed. Israel can't afford to displease God. The leaders need to deal with people who displease God. It's for the good of the nation. So, what does Stephen do before these charges? Well, Stephen doesn't try and reject the charges. Even though they're using false witnesses, he accepts the charges as is, just like when Jesus was on trial. There's truth in these false charges. And instead, Stephen answers their charges by looking at a series of case studies. He looks at Abraham, Joseph, and Moses. And what he shows is that attitude to place and practice is not what pleases God. God was never limited to a place, and it wasn't merely a question of practices. What has always pleased God is your attitude to his person. God cares about your attitude to the person who keeps his promises. So to our first case study, Abraham. Immediately, Stephen makes his point. The important thing with Abraham was never place but promise. God appeared to Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia. He appeared to Abraham when he was in Haran. In fact, Abraham never had a place in the land to call his own. But what he did have from God was a promise. Have a read starting at chapter 7, verse 2. Jump down to 7, verse 2. To their accusations, Stephen replied... Brothers and fathers, listen to me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham while he was still in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran. Leave your country and your people, God said, and go to the land I will show you. So he left the land of the Chaldeans and settled in Haran, and after the death of his father, God sent him to this land where you are now living. He gave him no inheritance here, not even a foot of ground. But God promised him that he and his descendants after him would possess the land even though at the time Abraham had no children. It was never about place, but God's promise. In fact, God's promise to Abraham included leaving this place. Keep reading from verse 6. God spoke to Abraham in this way, Your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and they will be enslaved and ill-treated for 400 years, but I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, God said. And after they would, they will come out of that country and worship me in this place. Case study one, and what have we found? Place just isn't the issue. When you're relating to God, what matters is his promise. But how will that promise come about? To answer that question, Stephen fast-forwards through Abraham's family tree, and he fast-forwards to Joseph. Why Joseph? What do we learn from Joseph? Well, the answer is, Joseph is the person God used to keep his promise. Through Joseph, God saved his people, and through Joseph... God started fulfilling his promise to Abraham. But the other thing Stephen points out is that Joseph was rejected by the patriarchs, by the fathers of the nation of Israel. The patriarchs were in God's place, and they sent Joseph off to Egypt. And where was God? Well, he, was he tied to place? No. He was with Joseph, wasn't he? Joseph was God's person, chosen to keep God's promise. Have a look in verses 9 and 10. Because the patriarchs were jealous of Joseph... They sold him as a slave into Egypt, but God was with him 
and rescued him from all his trouble. And then Stephen goes on to describe how Joseph brought the whole house of Israel down to Egypt. God saved Israel through Joseph, and he did it in Egypt. God isn't tied to a place. He's concerned about his promise. You can see it in the summary in verse 17. God was keeping his promise, and he was blessing the people. But where was he doing it? In Egypt. Have a read of verse 17. As the time drew near for God to fulfill his promise to Abraham, the number of people in Egypt greatly increased. Forget about place, says Stephen. What matters to God is his promise. God is pleased to keep his promise. Okay, so far it's all about place, but what about Moses? For Stephen's accusers, you you respect Moses by respecting the customs he gave, don't you? Moses is a practice giver. Well, no. As far as Stephen's concerned, Moses isn't the practice giver, he's the promise keeper. Moses is the person who kept God's promise to Abraham. And what's more surprising is that Israel didn't want a bar of it. The patriarchs didn't want Joseph and Israel didn't want Moses. Israel didn't recognise when God was keeping his promise. So in verse 18, Stephen describes Israel's oppression in Egypt. And then in verse 20, he introduces Moses and Moses is chosen by God. He's trained up as the perfect leader of Israel and God keeps his promise by providing a person to lead Israel. But what happens when Moses actually starts to lead Israel? What happens when Moses starts the attack on Egypt? Do do Israel rise up and follow him? No. No, they turn around and ask, who made you ruler over us? So follow along from verse 23. When Moses was 40 years old, he decided to visit his fellow Israelites. He saw one of them being ill-treated by an Egyptian, so he went to his defence and avenged him by killing the Egyptian. Moses thought that his own people would recognise that God was using him to rescue them, but they did not. The next day Moses came upon two Israelites who were fighting. He tried to reconcile them by saying, Men, you are brothers. Why do you want to hurt each other? But the man who was ill-treating the other pushed Moses aside and said, Who made you ruler and judge over us? So what's been happening? Stephen's been using these three case studies to answer their charges. He's charged uh, with speaking against God's place, but neither Abraham, Joseph, nor Moses met God in that place. And, And now we find that the importance of Moses was never in practices. Moses wasn't the practice giver, but the promise keeper. And most surprisingly, he was rejected as the promise keeper. And Stephen isn't finished yet. You see, why was God displeased with Israel? What was it that led to the destruction of Israel? It was their attitude to God's person. The person God sent to keep God's promise. Here are Stephen's accusers fixated with places and practices and all along, Israel's problem was their attitude to God's person. Stephen starts to make his point in verse 35. He emphasises who Moses was. First, he was their deliverer. He delivered them from Egypt, just as God had promised. Have a read from verse 35. Verse 35. This is the same Moses whom they rejected with the words, who made you ruler and judge? He was sent to be their ruler and deliverer by God himself through the angel who appeared to him in the bush. He led them out of Egypt and did wonders and miraculous signs in Egypt at the Red Sea and for 40 years in the desert. Second, God's Moses was God's representative. 
Through God's person, they had access to God. They heard his living words. And the most important word Moses brought them was a new promise. He promised them another prophet just like Moses. So have a read from verse 37. This is that Moses who told the Israelites, God will send you a prophet like me from your own people. He was in the assembly in the desert with the angel who spoke to him on Mount Sinai and with our fathers, and he received living words to pass on to us. But if this was God's attitude to Moses, what was theirs? Well, they rejected Moses, the promise keeper. Let's read the next couple of verses, starting at 39. But our fathers refused to obey him. Instead, they rejected him and in their hearts turned back to Egypt. They told Aaron, Make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who led us out of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. And so Stephen reminds them of the golden calf. He reminds them of how these people who rejected God's person also rejected God. They worshipped other gods that they'd made up. And it was that rejection which displeased God. It was that which led to the exile. To claim you're pleasing God by following Moses' practice Well, that's actually a flimsy stick as far as Israel's concerned. They just don't have a good record on that front. Stephen quotes the prophet Amos to prove his point. Halfway through verse 42, have a read. Did you bring me sacrifices and offerings for 40 years in the desert, O house of Israel? You have lifted up the shrine of Moloch and the star of your god, Rephim, the idols you made to worship. Therefore, I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. What was it that the Israelites did that displeased God? They rejected God's promised person, and so they rejected God. And in comparison, honouring the temple, well, that was trivial. God just doesn't care about place. Starting at verse 44, Stephen pretty much glosses over the history of the temple. He mentions the tent in the desert, and then the temple desired by David, and, and it being built by Solomon. But what was Isaiah's verdict about the temple? How important was the temple to God? Jump down to 48 and have a look. Verse 48. However, the Most High does not live in houses made by men. As the prophet says, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what will my resting place be? Has not my hand made all these things? Now Stephen is ready to drive the boot home. You see, the people he's talking to are continuing this history of Israel. Here they are all worried about God's place and following Moses' practices, but... They still won't accept God's promised person. They don't want a bar of Jesus. Jesus is the one who really kept God's promise. He's the one Moses promised. He's the one the prophets promised. Even the law pointed to Jesus. But just like their fathers killed the prophets, they killed Jesus. And that's how Stephen finishes his speech from verse 51. You stiff-necked people with uncircumcised hearts and ears, you are just like your fathers. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your fathers did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one, and now you have betrayed and murdered him. You who have received the law that was put into effect through angels, but have not obeyed it. Do you get the picture? They had totally missed what pleased God. They thought they pleased God by keeping practices and honouring a place But everything that God has done in history shows how unimportant they are. What pleases God is your attitude to a person, to the person keeping his promise. And Stephen points to his accusers and says, you don't please God, 
You rejected Jesus, God's promised person, and that's displeased God. Sadly, this doesn't bring a change in the attitude to his accusers. Instead, we find they reject Jesus yet again. You see, Luke wants us to see that their rejection of Stephen, well, it's actually a rejection of Jesus. Stephen's death is just like Jesus' death. Luke wants us to see the parallels with how Jesus died. Just like Jesus, Stephen speaks of the Son of Man standing at God's right hand. Just like Jesus, Stephen commits his spirit to God. And just like Jesus, Stephen asks God not to hold their sins against them. Watch for these things as I read through the account of his death, starting at verse 54. Starting at verse 54. When they heard this, they were furious and gnashed their teeth at him. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. At this... They covered their ears and yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed at him, dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. When he had said this, he fell asleep. Their attitude to Stephen reflects their attitude to God. And it's probably worth noting how this brings a few threads together for us. I don't know if you've felt it over the last couple of months, but I feel like I've been on a bit of a flip-flop. Um, one week we're talking about God's family and how, how God's family was and how they cared and shared for each other and, and how you shouldn't lie in God's family. And then the next week we're talking about persecution. First Peter and then John and then the other apostles and now Stephen. What do these two things have in common? What has the flip-flop been all about? Well, we've been seeing God keep his promise in Jesus. And we've been seeing the choice in how you respond to him. You see, either you please God by accepting Jesus, God's promise keeper, and in that case you become part of God's family and you care for it because it belongs to him. Or... You displease God by rejecting Jesus. And in that case, you join the history of rebellion against God. And you reject God's family. That belongs to him. Which brings us back to the passage today, doesn't it? See, we need to choose to please God. What's easy for most of us to hear is that places and practices don't please God. Not many people here would think that God is particularly concerned about this church building. We wouldn't pour money into the building to decorate in a way that pleases God. Uh, We wouldn't think God cares about whether the pulpit is over there or over here or whether we met in this building or in the church hall because it fitted more people. We're not fooled into thinking that place pleases God. And and generally, we, we don't think that pleasing God with our practices is a game either. We don't think there's something magical in the words said during our meetings. We, we wouldn't worry whether we said the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, the Lord's Prayer, or simply spoke to each other the truth about the Gospel. Uh, we don't try to fast or to punish ourselves or, or do something else in an effort to please God. Thankfully, God has liberated us from this sort of wrong thinking and we shouldn't ever go back to it. But... We should care about pleasing God. We don't want to buy into our society's attitude 
where God is such a genuinely nice guy that he'll be pleased with us no matter what. God is only pleased with us because of Jesus. Jesus is the one who kept God's promise. You you can't please God without accepting Jesus. That guy at the office, that really nice guy, and yet the guy, when you invite him to church, he just keeps saying, thanks, you know, but I'll be right. Well, he's rejecting Jesus. The parent at school may be delightful company, but when she asks you not to talk about Jesus to her children, well, she's rejecting Jesus. You may catch up with that old friend once a month. You know, you might have been friends since back in primary school, but if they don't have a relationship with Jesus, they're not pleasing God. They're as hard-hearted as a priest in today's sermon, and they're in trouble. We have to remind ourselves that the world really is that black and white. There really is only one way to please God. And if we don't bring that to people's attention, they're going to go on displeasing God. And if we do, they may hate us for it. But it's an unavoidable reality of life. How can we please God? Not by honouring places or practices, only by accepting God's promise keeper, Jesus. Why don't we pray? Heavenly Father, we thank you for liberating us from worrying about places and practices in an effort to please you. Thank you that it makes such a difference to how we live. We do ask, though, that you would forgive us when we have thought we were pleasing you in these things. And we also ask you to forgive us when we forget that we need to please you. We need Jesus. And we ask you to forgive us when we forget that we and everyone we know needs to know Jesus. Help us to live out what we know, to love Jesus and want others to know about him. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.